Hi, I'm Katerina and this is Sound Effects and Music and Mental Health Podcast. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me before. Yeah. yeah, that was good. That. Yeah. That was that was that was interesting. I know because of the feedback I get that people like a bit of mental health chat. It's been a real eye opener to realise that that's so valuable to people. As someone that started a podcast to show off and try and be funny. I mean, I'm guessing anyone listening to this probably does already listen to you, but just in case they don't, you interviewed me on your podcast last month and about 18 months before that, the Stupid Hearts Club podcast, which is now, that's the one, (laughs) and it's available in two platforms, isn't it, on Patreon and also it's free as well if people don't want to be a Patreon. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I started it on Patreon because I, it was like off the back of me being on Matt Morgan's podcast, which is only on Patreon. And so I started a Patreon on his advice. And surely enough, as you know, m- modest but very welcome number of people came over. And, you know, at a time where everyone's scrabbling around trying to like make a living, it's like really helped just to have a however many people uh, just want to contribute. But after I'd done it for a few months, because I know I've not got a massive audience on there, I thought it was worthwhile putting it out for free to give it a chance to grow. And then that's sort of the only way you're going to find new people who, you know, who then might want to jump aboard Patreon. But it's what's what all that matters to me is anyone who listens to it, especially when I, I hear that they, uh, that they're enjoying it or that they get something out of it. It's become probably the most wholesome thing in my working life, Mm. without a doubt. I mean, it's not like I can say there's zero ego involved in uh, putting out a podcast, which is often you just chatting away and quite often your own life enters the equation and all the rest of it. But the process of starting doing that and then over the months, realizing that people see it as a company, mm. then it becomes something that even though I'm sat on my own and banging on, I don't have to feel guilty that I'm just being self-absorbed because it's probably, I put it this way, it's probably a setting in which even self-absorption to some people is it's being like a proxy way of hearing a mind think. Mm. Right? So, whereas if I if I sit down with the same mate every week and moan about the same problems, I'm going to start start worrying that uh, I'm being a bit <clears throat> too me centric. But if someone sends you a message saying, "Oh, don't feel bad about talking about that because I've not known how to talk about it," mm. then it's like immediately it's not it's not all egoic. It's not all listen to me Mm. it's uh 
this thing can feel like that. We can all feel differently about that. Maybe you don't feel like that, but one thing is to bear this in mind. You sort of aim it in a more um, in a more general way because you're aware as a different like that. The vision of a listener is different. It's not. It's not as someone that's gr- grown up through the comedy world. It's not like entertain at all costs. It's just like explore. Yeah, and it's just ace. I mean, uh, all of the podcasts that I love, I, I love them for that reason too. Yeah, because you're kind of joining in on that journey with the person. Yeah, I mean, and I, honestly, I can't tell you. You know, well, maybe you you probably already know yourself. If someone someone sends you a message, you're just minding your own business, squeezing fruit in the supermarket, see if it's ripe, and then you get that little message, and it's someone saying, "I really needed that this week," mm. like. After years of like chasing the approbation of things like TV channels and you know the idea of like huge numbers of audiences and you making loads of money because you write a hit show or you know to be involved in something that everyone's talking about, so you get to say I'm doing that, and everyone goes, "Wow, isn't that cool?" Mm. That that had already started to lose its luster a bit because because as we can come to because like become much more uh, cynical about the whole idea of showbiz and like, idolizing people and all of that anyway. But uh, yeah, there's just, it's just a different frequency, isn't it? That's a bit more rooted in human beings caring about each other. That's not yeah. really what showbiz is. <laughs> that kind of links to your, to the name of your show, Stupid Hearts Club. Because again, I know you you've explained it a lot on your show, but do you want to do you want to explain why it's called Stupid Hearts? Club? Yeah, well, here's here's the thing, right? Uh, I've got a little logo there. I don't know whether it. that's the right way round, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, I love so, it. So the original one, what it was is like I've been doing music for years, but like on a very tiny, semi-shy bedroom creative hobby sort of mental health happiness processing thing. I've been a songwriter for years. And it's strange because I think like I became better at it than I thought I might, Mm -hmm. but also I've literally not got anything to show for it other than being proud of their own little bit of stuff in the same way that someone who takes up a sport and has personal bests and, uh, you know, or does art at a a class and then is proud proud of the picture that they get to take home and put on the wall uh and little experiences playing with friends where uh it's a very sweet thing if you play music with someone and then you uh you just have a little moment where you just what you did together just improved what the piece of music is uh it's on such a tiny level but it's like deeply important to me so anyway i i got into a an interesting unwise but very lovely romantic situation a few years ago with someone that lived a very long way away and we couldn't uh we knew that it was like a silly idea to try and think of ourselves as like an item because mm-hmm. the 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 um the distance was literally transatlantic it was like america england or canada england depending on where we were in the story uh and um and uh so we came up with the affectionate name literally for our relationship 
we called it Stupid Hearts Club. It's like our little club for like, you know, believing in something, even if it's a bit unrealistic because it's like, just feels nice to believe in it anyway. So like, I think love's like that anyway. And I've always written songs about feelings and girls and whatever else and, you know, mistakes we've made or things that you wish were happening that aren't happening and bittersweet stuff, you know. And uh, and, uh, I suddenly thought, Stupid Hearts Club, that should be what I call my music, Mm. right? So, because the thing was, it's not like, uh, years ago I had a band called The Above and we we never got anywhere either, but but uh, but we recorded an album. We had a lot of fun and played in a lot of places. And it's like, as you get older, the idea of whether that was like a success or a failure is completely irrelevant. Because what it was, it was hanging around with your mates twice a week playing music. It was amazing, mm. and we were all right. You know, we sounded all right, and lots of friends came to watch us, and we had a brilliant time. But I've always felt very conscious in my more mature years. I don't really want to start a band again. And 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 then, and then if you do your own music and you just call it like your name, like you're a solo artist, it almost, I'd feel a little bit cringe about it. Like it's like, it's the new album from Nicole Tutarevich. It's like, well, who's that? <laughs> no one. So it just felt quite nice to arrive at a little, even though they're only, it's only my project, mm. Stupid Hearts Club. The reason it made sense is partly because of the word club. So mm. I don't have a band, but... If someone, if I get talking to someone and they're a musician and they like a song, then I can go and hang out with them. And even just if it's just jamming or rehearsing or whatever, or recording something or going to an open mic night, but that person joins in. And like, so that night, Stupid Hearts Club is me and some bloke with a violin or, you know, someone who's got a little bit of percussion. And it's like, the idea is that over time, I would sort of meet enough people that you could say, want to record a few songs this weekend. Can we get a bunch of us in a room and just figure it out? Yeah. Like really organically. That would, to me, that would be like the dream expression of Stupid Hearts Club. And when you think yeah. of something like, obviously I'm not saying this on the same level of quality, but like, was it Buena Vista Social Club? Mm. Was like, it's just like more of an event. It's more of a a thing that happened when when a certain atmosphere happened. So that's, the, yeah, a long way of saying, as someone that does want to keep doing music forever, it feels quite nice to label it something that isn't just about me. Yeah. And also it's really sweet that it's named after this relationship. And the lady involved drew all these oh, nice. CD covers and did, like, I've got a, a nicer, more more detailed version of the logo somewhere. Uh and the idea is at some point I want to put it on my arm, want to tattoo. So even though we didn't work out, it still feels like it was like a really, really important expression of romance. Mm. And I, I, I'm, I am a hopeless romantic, like trying to learn, not maybe lose the hopeless a bit. But but uh, I, I strongly believe in uh, believing in, not in a naive way, but always believe in, in the best and the most sort of, positive, happy, loving, open, openness, you know, believe in that. So like when, then I'd done, so I'd changed my, you know, I'd gone, oh, that's my music name. And then I had like a different Instagram for that. And then I was just my my own name on Instagram. And then I just thought, well, you know, like someone like Badly Drawn Boy or whatever, you know, like you're not going to 
have a Damon Goff account and a badly drawn boy account, why don't I just call everything Stupid Hearts Club? Because yeah. then at least I'm directing everyone to the to the one thing, and you know, like, and there's other people out there who have a. It's a strange. It's a strange comparison. Like Scroobius Pip, yeah, clearly yeah. isn't his real name. It's like a DJ name, and I know I'm not a DJ, but I just thought, yeah, okay, I'll just put it all through that, and uh, I feel slightly odd about it because I've learned a lot about podcast in the last uh, year or two, and really, Stupid Hearts Club doesn't sound like a podcast that you know what it is. But I'm like, well, it's too late now. I love it. Mm. And it is a community. So I've kept it. I really like it. And also you, you use the word romance because I, I was going to say there's something romantic at the heart of what you're describing in yeah. all of those things. Like romance and belonging seem to be at the heart of all the things that you're doing. So romance can be can be a relationship but it can be romance with life it could be yeah, romance absolutely yeah yeah in a way it's like because I, I have massive ups and downs I've been through some serious stuff mm. and now and again you'll be saying you'll be thinking ah, how's this happen how why have I ended up predisposed um, would I describe myself as having a sort of depressive personality but then I get through whatever like you know situational shit where you're not feeling good and then I remember that, no, 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 no. My values, my philosophy is this is great. It's all great. Keep fighting for great. Keep mm. fighting for uh, finding things to do that you love doing. Keep fighting for the stuff that hurts you. Figure it out. Be open. Do all the work you can to sort of understand everything and life and yourself and your feelings and your relationships and your your history. Like I feel like I've benefited from that. So maybe that's what started to make sense is, maybe some something that the people that listen to the show like is that it's that thing of feeling, no, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to give up on it can be great. Mm. Or at least you can deal with not great in such a way that it leaves room for great to still exist. Mm. And uh, in a way that is that, that mirrors my attitude to sort of romantic relationships as well. So definitely a big softy and a, and a, I love, there's nothing more than, nothing, nothing I love more than, uh, than, a, than a narrative that's got a determination not to let go of hope. Mm. You know, well, you know, like, I'm one of the most emotional, and obviously it's a very dark subject, but uh, Life is Beautiful, the film. Yeah. I, I've never seen a more powerful expression of uh, look on the bright side. Yeah. I mean, heartbreaking but also it's like what what a, what a story like that and i don't know if, if if anyone doesn't know that film i won't spoil it for you but it's effectively uh a dad and his child or children during uh the second world war when basically the nazi he's jewish and runs i don't know if i can't remember if it's a bookstore or uh he's got a little business anyway and anyway the ss turn up and start carting people away. And he does everything he can to make that situation not scary or negative for his for the kids and the people around him. It's like keep it, keep it up, keep it happy. And it's like obviously it's tragic, but you can watch something like that and end up in pieces. But mm. the ultimate message is totally glorious, which is 
if if someone in that situation can can still clap their hands and say right okay you know this shit is happening but guess why and here's a little bit of a another spin on it it's you know it's an incredibly intense sort of version of that mm. but but at the same time the lesson is it's a reminder that there is more than one way of looking at a problem mm. and i think that in in you know in a much different in a very different way has been something that i've had to really really work at learning in order to lower my general anxiety and worrying level and it's taken years of uh exploring all kinds of facets of the mental health universe mm. to you know i don't know whether i'm just in a lucky period at the moment but i think i've got 6 months under my belt now i've been happier but I've still got some stressful shit happening. Yeah. But yeah. the voice that says, wait a minute, if we go down that route of the ultra worrying and the, the let the panic get you and let and especially if you start sort of believing the bad outcomes that a worrying situation would give you, like money worries. Mm. Doesn't name them. They're, they're the main ones at the moment. Okay. It's just this feeling now that in the middle of the night what still might wake me up and worry me gets soothed and put back to sleep like way quicker mm. and I'm not quite sure where I've nailed that but it's like yeah bloody was, relief yeah was something it seems like something shifted from for you really when you made the decision to move from the village you were in to yeah. change your environment yeah. it put you in a completely different frame of mind and headspace that just yeah. it's like you found connection you found a connection that wasn't there before yeah it's mad because it literally feels like look I'm not I'm not going to pretend that everything's perfect mm. but the, the the percentage by which it's better is so overwhelming that it basically has made room for it to be okay to have a bad week or a bad day or uh, whatever, because, yeah, you're right, something fundamental shifted. Uh, the thing that shifted was, because I got really ill, which we can go into, you can ask me whatever you want about that. I got really ill for about five months last year, like mentally ill, in a, in a way, on a, on, a, on a level that I'd never experienced and that was terrifying. And then when I came out of it, one thing that had changed was, well, I thought maybe I was going to be stuck like that and be a bit catatonic and a bit of a zombie. And then when I wasn't, it was like everything from tasting food to a bit of daylight or seeing a butterfly or being able to sing driving along in the car again. Like everything suddenly was like, whoa, all the simple stuff is really good, mm. right? But then the second thing was, it was a little bit, the analogy I always use is like, if if your brain is like a, a, a Wi-Fi box, and you spend five months with like one bar. And then if suddenly it came on and there's five bars, you, you do everything that you need to get done while there's a signal. You send the things and you upload the big file and you make the video call and you do everything. You live, mm -hmm. right? So, so what sort of happened was the feeling was I knew that where I was living was not good for me. 
but it was also sort of tied to a situation I was in that probably would have been yeah healthy to get a bit of distance from that. And then, so I didn't, it was scary because I didn't know I was going to like it here. I moved, I moved to Hove, Brighton and I knew it's like cool here, but so what? You can move anywhere and it's cool, but feel lonely or it, not what you thought and it could still be a bit crap. But I I just started feeling when I got here within days that I was having interactions with people and uh, what's the word where uh, where you've got stuff to to soak up and look at and all that uh, not inspiration like stimulus stimulus right yeah. so there's more of that here than anywhere I've lived since I was in London. I didn't realize how much that that felt good for my brain. And maybe even at that point, my brain had been going so slow in this sort of depressed state in a quiet place that being able to distract it and show it little things to be excited about was also like it doing a little training montage and getting itself fit again. Mm. So I could honestly, I could feel my brain feeling different. Yeah. And um, yeah, like here I am six months in and I just adore it here. Like this evening, I just finished some work, which in itself is a relief because I couldn't work very much when I wasn't well. So I'm starting to pick up some new uh, writing contacts and freelance bits of work, just bits and bobs, whatever's going, right? Mm. And again, I'm very grateful even for like a a week's work doing something fairly straightforward. It's not like, oh man, I'm supposed to be writing a sitcom or whatever. It's just like, doesn't matter anymore. It's like, you live somewhere you you like, You've got loads of mates here. You're meeting interesting people. There's people wandering about on bloody rollerblades next to the beach. I can cross the road and I'm at the beach. Mm. Like, there's just so many things that are, that just feel generally better that still wondering how the hell I survive in the industry that I that I work in in very different times during a a global financial crisis is like it's just a bit easier to take basically yeah well you've kind of described again the romance of of where you're living so day by day mm. you're finding a different you know actually when you talk it reminds me of um the film Amelie a little bit um <laughs> do, do, you, do you like Amelie I don't mind it actually you yeah you know some people find it really saccharine but it's it's so beautifully designed and uh there's something about the french attitude to these things mm. that that well obviously it's synonymous with romance really isn't it like the whole backdrop and paris and all that just uh yeah there's a sort of artistic lens on it isn't there yeah i it's like cause... that i like to live in a bit of a dream world Do you know what these people have in common? This is Amelie. With the discovery of a simple childhood treasure, she begins a quest to fix other people's lives. And perhaps her own as well.
um, the reason I thought of Emily is because I'm thinking about her approach to life when she talks about just feeling the feeling of coffee beans in her hand or kind of oh, yeah. taking each moment as it comes. And then mm-hmm. even the story of her romance, the way it kind of plays out, she just follows her intuition and plays these little sort of quirky little games. I guess there's something quite useful about it. That's the sense I get from you, like the idea of art and music and comedy, yeah, yeah. all these things you do being looked upon. Yeah, playing, that's it. Yeah, you're playing and being youthful, youthful. I don't mean naive in the negative sense, but in a positive no, sense, like oh, yeah. the, no. yeah, the youthful naive. It's like keep it a bit naive. Yeah. And that's yeah. that's the interesting thing because I, I, you know, I've done proper work on, let, let's just say, and that wasn't the only relationship where after it run its course, I had found some things out about, or I I was working on understanding what, what makes a person go for certain situations and certain dynamics. And there's a bit of a pattern. And it's like, on the one hand, I can't keep doing the same thing where it's like fall in love with someone who's not really available and uh, sort of end up short change not because the other person necessarily but short changed because you've chosen a situation that can't really give and why why would you choose that and all, all that really interesting stuff mm. and I, I like to get under the bonnet and figure that out so I have then come out of it going well I won't be doing that again you know like next time it will be something that uh, is like built on mature ground and that is uh, practically possible and that uh, takes its time and whatever but it's like Stupid mm. Hearts Club. Mm. Like, I still love the idea that that all goes out the window when this thing comes along mm. that that lights you up and that makes you want to be creative and that gets you writing songs. And the irony is, there's a flip side to that, is that it's almost, oh, oh, careful how I use the word, but almost a perverse side of that is that by choosing these kinds of things, you also get to create a sort of romantic version of misery that allows you to wallow. And mm. actually, probably my best work as a writer or as when I've written songs or uh, even like the kind of things that really make me laugh comedically, definitely rooted in in, in tragedy as well as comedy mm. or, you know, uh, hope. Hope's beautiful, but everyone knows it's the hope that kills you. So, seeing seeing a character say say like um, uh, Marion and Jeff, the Rob Brydon thing from like about two thousand or whenever it was, two thousand and two ish. He was this like divorced man who drives a luxury cab, and he uh, all of the, the the ten minute shorts that made up the first series, just like a video a video camera on in the car. While he's in between jobs, he's just uh, casually, chirpily chatting away about the unbelievably unfair cards that he's been dealt as a result of getting divorced. Mm. And I just think it's one of the most magical comedy things I've ever seen because you're dying for him. Yeah. You know, you, you allow yourself to laugh at him. The, the performance of someone... You know, it's so powerful, like states, human states like denial, like the things we say 
in like I, and I did it when you know God bless this lovely girl who I was so wrapped with. And I'd have mates over all of this time saying, look, we love you. And I'm sure she's great. But like, how often have you actually seen each other? And when, what's the, and I'd go, <laughs> you always like, you guys are always saying that, but we've talked about that. And we, you know, we, our little poem that we've woven looks like this. And all you, all you straight people, I don't mean straight as in sexuality, but like all you oh. squares, all you squares that don't even get how real romance works, you don't really understand because we are we are slowly rowing ourselves to this promised land. And it's like yeah. it took well into three years into it where I'm sort of starting to look behind me and wonder if it's a bit, <laughs> bit quicker to row back, you know. Uh, but, like, yeah. I don't regret that. No, no. Yeah. I don't regret it at all. It's like a, a great love of my life, you know. Yeah. Um, obviously, because you're talking about it, I don't know how much you want to go into that, but I get the sense that you'd like to talk about it a bit more. So do you want to say more about that romance, or like how it is now and how it happened? If you want to, I don't want yeah, to. No, it's, but, it, yeah, no, I, I don't think I've... Uh, I've not really gone there on my podcast with this, but uh, I think these sorts of things are really important and I have got sort of sufficient... Just about, I might add, sufficient distance from it mm. to be now looking at it in a sort of uh, balanced and compassionate way. It's still, I can still feel it, mm. but but only this morning, funnily enough, I I emailed her to say, I know I've asked you this before, and I'm like a forgetful old man, but can you send me the link so I can reorder some stickers? Did I ever, did I send you a sticker? No, you got a, have you not got a sticker? I haven't. No. Right. So <laughs> I'd love when, when I well, well, you'll have to have one after this. Okay. So I did some cards. I've got folding ones, but all these, and I've got these stickers, which Devon, like yeah. Devon, Devon, um, she made these and that. So it's like really cute, right? And I was like, ah, I've only got a few left, and it's like it's always a bit of a thing, isn't it? Sort of having contact with someone where you've just been getting better from accepting that it's changed and all that. Mm. But it was really nice this morning to be able to just send an email without needing to take a three-day run-up where I'm wondering what I should and shouldn't say and all that. It was just like, mm. oh, that's a health, that's healthy now. You know, that's uh, just lives in a really sort of, uh, you know, it, it can take a while, can't it, after something ends. I mean, not all not all people would even stay in touch in any way, but it can take a while till you can sort of smile fondly about someone and sort of smile at a Christmas card type thing and just go, oh, there's a chapter in my life, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and I don't have that with everyone that I've ever been involved with. Some people are, I guess, uh, some people pass through your life and maybe one or both of you doesn't conduct yourself in the best way or it how it ends isn't nice or or it what it might have been toxic in ways that uh that are not easy for people to forgive each other or whether you were immature or just not happy or whatever like it's different with different people isn't it but uh it is very intriguing that as i make peace with that that huge romance mm -hmm. isn't 
doesn't appear to be like it's ever going to be like a story again that I've like kept the aesthetic of it feels mm. like I'm not letting go of that and I still actually literally want I want it like obviously it's partly because it's music and it's a podcast and stuff now but yeah. it's still I think it's still lovely to have people that they still feel like they, they should be like tributed what's it yeah. celebrated yeah. as part of the the tapestry it's quite a sweet thing you know what do you think it is about it? What's the essence of that that you're trying to sort of make a tribute to? I think it's like, you know, this bit about uh, stupid hearts have been believing in, like, the real thing against the odds. Mm. It's that. It was just like uh, two relationships in my life have felt, even though they've not been the one that have ended up in the longest or whatever, or, like, you know, being uh, not ended up like coupled up properly or married or living with these people. There are two relationships in in all my years that 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 reach the sort of litmus test of like the purest, like it's you know it's real, you know, real real furiously loving someone and them loving you back, mm. really fucking caring about each other's bones, you know, and. uh that's strange because she, you know, we all go, th- well, not all people, some people just are in long relationships, but you go in and out of these things and it's like, there's a different, you know, there's a different hue to every afterwards, almost there's a different hue. Like you kind of know who belongs in what column mm-hmm. in your history, yeah. but still, you know, there's people in, you know, in the story that I've lived with and that, uh, you know, frankly, that I've married, <laughs> you know, that uh, absolutely with good reason at the time and all the rest of it. But you you, you can look back and go, uh, yeah, that happened for those reasons and it went wrong for those reasons. But then occasionally there are just like, there's a spirit about certain people that uh, they become your sort of cinema paradiso person, you know? Mm-hmm. And again, like in terms of the, stories that I love and what I like writing about if I'm singing or like, or in in terms of songs of other people's that I love, you know, cause like the other thing about stupid hearts club is I go out and I sing, I'm quite happy to sing in a restaurant, loads of well-known songs, but they're all stupid hearts club is all love songs and romance and oldies, yeah. you know, like that, that sort of fifties crooner style romance, like, uh, mm. Something like, uh, is it, I think he's called Johnny Ray. There's a song called Cry that was in, I don't know whether it's in The Irishman, but there's like some of the, some of those like gangster films when they're suddenly sitting in a, in a nightclub and there's an old singer on a retro mic. And it's like those powerful, hopelessly romantic songs. Oh. And they, they all sounded so innocent as well. You know, the lyrics were really innocent. And in an era where... Uh, People didn't talk about their feelings, but they went to watch Roy Orbison. Yeah, yeah. Like Roy Orbison said it for you type yeah, of thing. Yeah. I just just love all that. It was that the kind of music you were sort of growing up listening to? Were those kinds of early memories for you? There's there's uh where that comes in is because we, we lived in a pub in Cholton in Manchester, which had a different atmosphere at different times in the day and in the week. 
but the daytime the daytime sort of older regulars slash don't ever do anything other than drink crew a lot of them were of a generation where they'd come out of like the teddy boy era mm-hmm. and they were now like whatever push it 50 60 and when they pop up to the jukebox of a of a wednesday afternoon that's when all the classic ballads would be on mm. and Irish songs and stuff, you know, uh, yeah. Yeah. Or like Dolly Parton's I Will Always Love You and all that. And and on the you'd, you'd have these sweet sort of older, wistful people in there probably thinking about their own uh, bittersweet memories. Mm. And also the other thing is that because those people were there, then we'd have karaoke and that. So from the age of about 17... I was getting up in our pub and doing karaoke and sort of discovered a certain songs I could sing pretty well. Mm. So then you start getting like feedback. And then I soon realized that I could make all the old people cry singing these like Neil Diamond songs. <laughs> <laughs> so so it's just something very pleasing about that kind of singing though, physically. Yeah. When you not quite go up to like operatic level, but like Say like uh, Tony Bennett, right? Mm. Let me think. Like I've got because I've got a really good playlist of of covers that I, I've learned a lot of them. Or sometimes I do a backing track, but I've basically learned or made backing tracks of loads of old songs. So yeah, "Cry" by Johnny Ray. What a song that is. Um, where am I, where am I going here? Stupid Hearts covers. Uh, I Drove All Night by uh, Roy Orbison. Second Time Around by Frank Sinatra. The Autumn Leaves by Nat King Cole. I mean, like I do like, you know, there's like weird stuff like, strangely, a bit of Massive Attack or Dr. Hook or Richard Hawley or Velvet Underground or whatever. But like Richard Hawley is a very good example of someone who's like uh, contemporary, but mm. making a kind of music that makes sense to me. Have you heard the song Mirrorball by Arctic Monkeys? Yeah, yeah. From the last album. I mean, that is like, in my dreams, I write that song, you know. <laughs> so the, la- the last Arctic Monkeys album, which again was very loungy, which is like, I love that sensibility. Yeah. You know, I think they're slightly overplaying it now. Uh, the song Mirrorball starts, I think the line, something like, don't get emotional. And it's such a sensitive delivery. And it's such a chilled out, almost jazz, loungy sort of thing. Like that is like bang center. Uh, you know, like I've been, like I said, I've been writing songs for years, and there's too many of them piled up to, to really point at the pile and say what what kind of music it is. But uh, if you, to me, being mature and trying to and, and having this idea of mm. Stupid Hearts Club mature trying to write songs I want them to feel appropriate Don't get emotional That ain't like you Yesterday Partly like 
maybe I'm slightly overthinking it you know it doesn't really matter does it just express yourself if you want if you want to write a hardcore techno tune no one should stop you but I've just got I just got this feeling that the and actually you know you were saying about like me being something shifted and I've moved here and all that to me it fits in with the vision it's like this place feels like a place that I could be 65 years old which isn't as far as away as I'd like it to be I could be 65 years old unloading my amp out of a cream Mercedes with my, you know, <laughs> snakeskin shoes on to do a set at a, a hotel. Yeah. That that will absolutely do me fine, you know. Because um, as I'm listening to you, I think what I pick up on is that you're talking about, like, an attunement to a feeling and a sentiment that is quite nebulous to describe in words. But when you're talking about the experiences you had in that pub, I could almost smell it and imagine it and feel it as you're describing it. So it's Mm -hmm. like this kind of nod to perhaps like a different era or an era that like we all recognise but maybe is passing by. It's kind of nostalgic. It is a bit, but it's also, it's like, I don't think that those eras were any better. Mm. But what I find interesting, I find it interesting that in the eras where nobody could talk about feelings, Mm. the most romantic art, certainly musically, feels like that's where it came from. When you've got, you've got like the classic sort of K-Tel album, mum ballads, all are all, all the best ones are from the 70s. Yeah. And and I would include even like things like... uh, Lionel Richie and things like that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and like, uh, I don't know, maybe there's a bit of 80s in this as well, but, you know, things like Randy Crawford and uh, the sort of Elton John-esque ballads. Yeah. yeah. But but the thing about, uh, it's funny because actually some songs from the era I'm, that we're sort of talking about where you start back anywhere in between Cole Porter, Gershwin and, up to sort of 50s, 60s, Sinatra and beyond. The the words are really innocent, but we're, as we're starting to realise, sometimes the, the as, as with lots of old art, it's, some of it hasn't aged very well in terms of what someone's actually saying. Mm. So the, uh, the best example would be every year this debate comes up now about whether anyone should be singing Baby It's Cold Outside because there's connotations mm of someone either getting someone a bit tipsy so they can't drive mm. or I think people are reading a bit too much into it when they're talking about someone spiking someone in, in a Christmas song. But but at the same time, that is in there. Like it's a mm. coquettish game. But it's really interesting that the, the language around it all, like this romance stuff, it's also sort of light and airy and... Uh, But they come out with it, you know. Mm. Roy Orbison songs are absolutely heartbreaking, uh, and and the, the 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 drama in the music, like where he takes it, that these songs end up like a bloody jumbo jet taking off by the end. Mm. And you can just imagine, like you know, some you know, to a. a a couple who've met and gone to the pictures twice and had a bag of chips and now think they've got to get married. Mm-hmm. Haven't got any sort of emotional vocabulary. 
but they go for, they go to a dance or something or one of them puts a Roy Orbison record on and it's just all been said for you right. and they fall into each other's arms and, and then get married and it's just like <laughs> it's kind yeah. of ridiculous but there's a but simplicity to it there is a simplicity to it because I guess maybe this is where you're leading me very cleverly not I do I, <laughs> no but I, I I do have a very complex analytical let's let's dissect everything years of therapy you know therapy speak kind of psychologically slightly verbose in that sort of field mm. I could pull it apart we end up having three hour conversations that are half conversation half row where it's <laughs> it's like uh it's all getting t- so complex and cerebral that you feel like you're lost in the matrix, right? Mm. But to counter that part of your head, stick Mirrorball on and just sing it out. Mm. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? Because when it comes down to it, those two things, mm. modern and complex and old and simple, very different sensibilities, but you're still just talking about feelings. Yeah. Amazing, aren't they? Feelings. Yeah. What are you feeling right now? I'm very comfortable when I'm in a conversation with someone and we're and you're allowed to open this channel up. Yeah. So I'm fine. Thanks yeah. for asking. No, no, I was wondering what the the feeling was whether there was like uh excitement or like teariness or anything just as you were thinking about it what in terms of the specific relationship that you were talking about or just generally literally just right now as you were describing yeah because i feel like this is going to sound cheesy but i do mean it i could still have a moment and get get a bit of a lump in my throat thinking about you know, the last time I felt I was in love. Mm-hmm. But, but the reason that it's in a healthy place is because the shit that happened to me afterwards and what I had to do to pull myself out of it and how I have rebuilt this new era, mm-hmm. whether whether or not another person may be in your life and could be, like, brilliant for you, it turns out that, like, as cliched as it is, you really got to look after yourself first. So... I feel like this is the first time I've really, really had my own back mm. and and being like fond of myself and encouraging myself even when it's like like I said, like I might still wake up at two in the morning and go, shit, is that payment coming through? And how sh- how ashamed will I be if in another eight weeks I've got to ring a friend or a relative and say, I'm really sorry, but some money's not come in yet. Could I borrow a grand and could I pay you back in a few weeks? Like, oh, it's fucking exhausting. And, uh, mm. you know, I haven't got in, I haven't got a huge amount of stability yet. Mm. But the bit that's, the bit that's stronger is going, as soon as I'm worrying about that, the bit that's stronger is going, yeah, but we're working on that, aren't we? Mm. And you're doing really well and you've got all this way. Last year, you were a gibbering wreck. And you've moved, you've made new friends, you're way happier. And uh and you've become more humble about how you make a living instead of mm. having this big uh, the wrong sort of relationship with ambition. Mm. 
Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I do. I it was that was a question I was um gonna ask you. I was, I was waiting for it to just kind of emerge naturally. It's kind of from up here because you I I remember you once talking about like there was a point where well because you've described when you were in the pub like you would it would start where you would get up and sing karaoke and that's kind of where you maybe began your journey into becoming a musician but that it seems like there was a point in your life where maybe there was a dream or you had some kind of ambition to sort of make it yeah to be like that concept of being um in a traditional sort of band or a solo artist that then gets a record deal and makes it and whatever making it means and then there's that trajectory and a lot of the people I've interviewed on my podcast at least the musicians because not all of them are musicians but Mm. of the musicians I've interviewed I'd say I think the majority of them would identify with that kind of trajectory whether they made it or not but they were on that path but you're describing something quite different and I wanted to ask you about like you know what happens when you make that decision to let go of that dream and pursue a kind of slightly more romantic way of doing it the way you've described yes yeah well well, it's it was slightly different for me because I loved two things at the same time comedy and music Mm. but every single day and I'm not I'm not trying to blow smoke up my own arse here but basically (laughs) I've developed a personality that means that my my mouth is a, a freaking joke machine all the time and my brain is always throwing an angle at me and it's I don't know whatever like it's like this weird nervous system lightning bolt thing that just happens all the time so as soon as I started saying Do you know what I might have a go at comedy everyone's like yes obviously and I loved that because it was people encouraging me but I was quite scared of trying it but then i started trying it and and it started going all right at the same Mm -hmm. time nothing makes me happier than sitting and twiddling around doing music but I don't I don't have I don't have anything that feels like evidence that I'm good at it because I do it privately Mm -hmm. and I'm not like a trained musician and I know and I'm not someone that's that was collecting vinyl at the age of 12 and now they've got like two garages full of you know, I've got all rare Leonard Cohen albums and, um, you know, just encyclopedic about, you know, just haven't been, it hasn't been that for me. It's been, it, singing has been an emotional tool, mm. regardless of whether I was 14 and when it was still all right to like Michael Jackson <laughs> or, <laughs> or or whether it's now where I'm discovering all sorts of music that I didn't grow up on because I grew up in Manchester in the 90s. I just did all that, right? Mm. So by the time I sort of like started picking up a guitar and singing and thinking, can I do this in front of people? It was in a very, very almost painfully self-conscious way. Mm. But because I like living and like just saying being open, it's like, well, do it anyway. If Mm. I can go and do open mic nights and a few people clap, I'll I'll have proved to myself I can do that, right? Meanwhile, as soon as we started doing comedy, it was like leading to suddenly being in rooms with professional people and being told that what you were doing was funny and to send some ideas to this person. And that. so you were effectively being taken seriously by an industry immediately. Mm. And that was like age 27. No, I didn't actually do any comedy till I was 30, but 
anything that I've ever done with music has been smaller group of people where we just all secretly tell each other we think we might be quite good and then we go out and do it and then you don't dare like uh put it to the intimidating world of a and r and record companies and radio stations because maybe it was like the fear of the fear of it not being true that any of your stuff was any good was quite terrifying actually so over those next sort of 10 10ish 12 15 years mm-hmm. now i have a cv that says this bloke's done loads of comedy and is a professional that doesn't mean all of it's any good anyway <laughs> like, yeah. you know like i've done a good job but none of it is you know a couple of things have done all right won a few awards but you know i'm not fucking spike milligan you know and it's strange that i was holding myself to a standard in doing music that's like mm-hmm. well if i'm not morrissey if i'm not you know uh, Neil Young, mm. uh, you're just a pale imitation. Everyone will be able to see through it, and you shouldn't do it. Then, at somewhere down the line, it started to be like, maybe it's okay to be just as good as you are, mm. Mm. and maybe it's okay. Maybe it's okay that uh, it doesn't have to be at the top to be good. Mm. And I tell you, I'll tell you who taught me that. It's a lovely man who is it's as cheesy as hell right but he he was like a singer on the Costa del Sol mm. who's got loads of great stories about being in the music industry for years and when he scratched beneath the surface he was like it's almost like a buzz lightyear sort of attitude where he was he's lived it and everyone treats him like he's a rock star and he mm. had like Harley Davidson gear and all that right until he died like in his mid 70s mm. And he walked it and talked it and he lived and breathed music and he still made money and did like gigs and whatever. But it never really got much higher than, if you like, holiday camp, holiday bar, restaurant, occasional. There's, you know, some like great years of playing every week in residency on the beach and the band are excellent and all that. But it's still, it's Copacabana time, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah. So I, I, my mum was always raving about him. He's called Mel, Mel Williams. And the thing was, by the time I saw him, he was like, I think he was like 70. And he was wearing tight leather pants, mm. sort of rockabilly, long, long jacket, mm. brothel creepers. <laughs> And, and he does play with musicians, but he'd also just do gigs where he's just singing or playing the guitar and singing. And he's doing the splits. He's oh, jumping right. around like an absolute lunatic, right? But the thing was, like, he could really, really sing. Yeah. And and it, it was one of those things where you're going, this is sort of, look, I'm in a, I'm in a place full of old expats and we're watching a 70-year-old man do the splits. But what what we're all experiencing is definitely brilliant. Yeah. And anyway, I met him. Sorry, I'll get a bit emotional because he, he wasn't around long. Um, and my mum always said, you'll love Mel. And I used to roll my eyes, you know, like, oh, shut up about this pub singer. But then I met him and we, like, got on, like, two little, like, we were the same age and we just met on holiday. 
and we were messaging each other, sending him music. He was sending me music. He was like giving me like grandfatherly advice, even though I'm never going to get anywhere. It was like, it was cute because it was like he was taken seriously, like a song I'd send him. Yeah, I like what you've done there. Maybe just like think about compressing it a bit more. And, and it's like, Mel, it's just a song I've written like on Garage Band. <laughs> and, uh, but he was, he was so, so lovely. But he said something. That I think I ended up watching, like he'd done a few videos and stuff and it. He'd been interviewed. He'd get, you know, like you can go to the Costel Sol, you get in the local paper. Um. <laughs> so he he would somehow kid people that he was a star and he'd get like interviewed, right? So when I actually met him properly, it was when the Rolling Stones did Old Trafford about five years ago. Right. Right. And he hadn't been well because he always said he was going to rock till he dropped. And he actually, he'd he'd had heart problems and he'd actually been in hospital with a heart attack. But my mum and, and my my stepdad um, paid to fly him over with his with his girlfriend Sally. And he came to Manchester and we all went and watched the Rolling Stones, which is like his favourite band ever, and who he really wanted to be. Mm. And we stayed in the same Premier Inn. And I woke up on the on the morning of the gig and the BBC were there interviewing him. <laughs> Brilliant. Right. And he was, I've got, I'll send you a photo. He's yeah. got aviators on, <laughs> blacking like gold lame fucking Harley t-shirt and all the rest of it, covered in jewellery. And it's like this 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 journalist is sort of going. You were there when music was invented, basically. And he's going, look, when when rock, you know, the first week of rock and roll ever, but like, like he was there. And I just sat and watched him and just thought, this is fucking amazing. Like, <laughs> no one's bothered to check, like, who is this guy? <laughs> and I just loved him for it. And, and one of the things he was saying, I think he actually said it to that interviewer, you can have a really good life playing and doing music because it makes you happy. And you can make a living out of it. Oh without having to worry about whether it's at the top. And I suddenly thought, what does he mean? And then I thought, all oh, right, you mean like you might, if if you love singing, going along to some restaurant and singing songs you like singing mm. and then being given 250 quid is sort of a version of a job. Yeah. Well, it is a job or it's, you know, maybe it could be like my part-time job. Maybe it could be my side hustle that will take the edge off how shit scared I am about not earning enough in the TV industry. And I suddenly thought, fuck it, I'm going to be like the British Mel Williams. <laughs> Brilliant. And he was my inspiration. <laughs> is that what you're doing on Brighton here? Yeah, yeah brilliant. <laughs> but like, even though it's slightly like I'm trying to put a, a slightly ironic I'm in on the joke thing on it, it's like, yeah. nah, no, I'm I'm still a cheeser that grew up in a pub doing karaoke. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Alicia Lane, Leslie Harrison, Mel Williams. <laughs>
bit. That's mm, honesty, though, isn't it? Yeah, that's what I was going to say, because I guess you're passing down the message he was giving you. So again, that, that sentiment that you're describing, the passing on of that romance is what you're kind of getting across. Yes, but the other part of it is that when I, somewhere on the line I thought, come on, mate, your bread's buttered with the bit of you that can be funny, less likely to be a rock star. Like, also, you're not that confident at that. And then it's sort of almost gone the other way now where it's like you've proved you can be a professional comedy person, but mm. you're also now like cynical about that industry anyway. Yeah. And now the idea of uh, if you told me now, right, I've, I've sorted it out, you're going to be singing in a brasserie every Friday night for the next six months. I'd be so happy. <laughs> and then doing a bit of busking and like meet some people and record the odd song. I'd be so happy. Yeah. And it's like, it's because there's nothing tied to it that is about achieving or proving anything. Yeah. It's just pure enjoyment. Yeah. The impression I get is that, I'm trying to articulate what I'm experiencing when you're talking, it's like you're describing through the different scenarios you've just described with this man, Mel Williams, and also when you're in the pub when you were younger with those men the, the kind of crooner style mm -hmm. is that you're describing guidance like you're describing mm -hmm. almost like a mentor experience that you're experiencing through the music that's really and interesting as someone that grew up without my dad i was gonna say yeah yeah, yeah. from a very young age i've i've always been good at been just curious enough to like to have the cheekiness to go right well I might try that and that's on me right but mm. key people along the way have been there's like a sort of montage of echoey voices that have said certain things mm. art tutors got the Charlie Laycock at Stockport College my art, art teacher at school Mr Whitaker. Mel, you know, there's like a couple of people who were like friends or it was like a, a couple of old flatmates of mine, actually, who are not even that far apart, but they would have a moment when they're serious and they're being generous about what they might see in you. And what the way it happened yesterday was with my mate Connor, mm. who I've who I've uh, collaborated with on a film script. And we, 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 we click so well talking about art and movies and whatever. And he's a, he's a director. He directs a lot of drama. And we we were flatmates like 20-odd years ago. And we're sitting there yesterday having a quick beer. Mm. And the bit of me he knows is a little bit like I've given up a bit and I'm sort of a little bit like the R R Mickey Rourke in The Wrestler when it comes to the comedy game now. And uh, he was like, I honestly think that you should get up and do like a load of live comedy about about exactly that and we and we started again getting talking about how what that idea could be mm. and i'll share it with you i'm not saying it'll ever happen but just share it with you just for the sake of the story i was going imagine like coming out and doing like an hour show about the fact that it's just like i've lost my way and i'm not making i'm not fully making a living like i was tv's very different changed and i don't really know what to do but one thing I could do is go out and start trying to earn my stripes as a live comedian because it's mm -hmm. plausible and you can get paid, right? Mm -hmm. 
But to start doing that when you're nearly 50, it's like kind of not the way around it usually happens. But then we were like, oh, shit, that's the idea. You know, the idea is, hello, I'm a knackered person. I shouldn't be fucking doing this. And we we had we had the idea of writing a show called Young Man's Game, mm. where it's basically the whole thing is someone standing in front of you being funny. It's like the last thing I want to be doing. Mm-hmm. And you can make that really funny because that's immediately painful. Yeah. So I'm not saying I don't know whether or not we'd do that, but he's he's texting me this morning saying, "Write that show." I'm yeah. like, oh, do I have to? <laughs> but but that's yeah. lovely, isn't it? Because yeah. it means something to me because that's someone that I think you've got my back. You're a proper mm-hmm. friend, and mm-hmm. now and again, someone in your life will say something that actually fucking means something. Mm. I love that. I love that about good people. Yeah, it seems like that's important to you. Goodness. Oh yeah, I think I think uh, it's one of my favorite bits about getting older is realizing how nice it is in this world that's full of bloody cynical characters and corruption and selfishness and just just the news. You know, the news is just so horrible, and like it honestly makes a difference just to be like. And that's why I love moving. I wasn't expecting it, but when I moved to Brighton. Because it's the South, isn't it? Us Northerners think the South isn't friendly, end of. Yeah. And I got here and it's like, all right, mate, where are you from? Like the person giving serving you a pint. Yeah. Uh, all right. So it's it's like that, is it? Just warmth and like friendliness and just like a little moment, just that say hello to someone or ask how they are or thank them for, you know, if you've just had something in a cafe, just say, I'm not being funny. That was really nice. You know, and it's like it's it becomes like a a fuel for your own happiness. And I am a miserable git a lot of the time. Like I am John I'm basically Basil Faulty. Grumpy round the house. It's like get why is that out there? Things on my leg, like get off. Like that all the time. But when there's human beings around, revert to uh life is beautiful mode yeah it's really important that way you relate to other people through talking and sharing there's something about sharing there yeah but i think that's it maybe the thing that really drove that home was the the huge sink into like what was effectively like a breakdown at the same time as or around the same time as lockdown, COVID, living somewhere isolated, in very simple terms, and I've said this to my son who's been going through some stuff, said, look, mate, the answer has turned out to be other human beings. Mm. Yeah. End of. Not that on its own, got to look after yourself, but other human beings, you know, and that's like, it's nice to remember that at a time when we're all so divided. A lot gets evoked in me when you're speaking because it's like I'm going from, it is almost cinematic because it's like I'm going back to images of your past in the pub and then to the present in Brighton. And there's certain things you've said 
like you just you mentioned you grew up without a father figure in connect in connection to this kind of like who you meet and who makes an impact on you and I have noticed when I've interviewed other musicians well they they talk a lot about their fathers and I wondered about fathers and sons and what it means to become a musician and the identity that gives I don't know it might become a bit clearer um, but I'm not sure if you've got any thoughts already on that well the thing is my dad was so absent literally did not have any any uh any time with him from from the day he left when I was like two or three so like for all of those years it was a void and then when my little boy was born which was in 2000 and uh just right at the end of 2008 I found out three months later in March 2009 that my dad had passed away and I was actually going through talking about it in therapy at the time that maybe I should get in touch with him and let him know he's a granddad. So the the mysterious invisible baton that he hadn't passed me, I was like, oh, I'm holding it anyway. Oh, there was a dad. I am a dad. There is a son. The surname, the lineage yeah. suddenly became a real thing. So... Thing is, I was already like, that doesn't that doesn't really have any resonance to the music thing for me, other than that there are probably a few songs along the way that uh, are that theme, quite well spaced out at the different points in that journey. And I was thinking not long ago, if if I'm going to make the effort to, you know, it's not it's not it's not cheap recording songs, but uh, I've got a little spine of songs that are quite well, you know, in terms of what year they were written. They are all really different part of where it was all at with my relationship with fatherhood. And I think there's a sweet like mini album slash EP, maybe five, six songs that are all that, the story of that bit of me. Mm. And I'd really love to record them as a thing. Make it make a lovely piece, like, you know, just piece of, a nice piece of vinyl just to do like a few a few copies like just that because uh, again to me it's like creating things mm. it's about it doesn't really matter now what where it goes I, I've always had this image of like the shelf with the stuff you made on it mm-hmm. there's the album yeah. I did with those people you know there's that painting I did when I did that art class there's a DVD of a thing I made like that's like the little what you would put in your little treasure box. So that does feel like it would be a worthwhile little musical project. Yeah, yeah. It's very interesting, the messaging, because they're the only songs that aren't just about a girl who's not available. <laughs> yeah. And that I love anyway. <laughs> But it's like storytelling. You're kind of passing down something about passing on and passing down and retelling and telling a story that is kind of uh, on some level people connect to. Um, It's a well-told story, but you're you're experiencing it and then passing it on in your own way. Um, Yeah. And it's spooky that you can write. For me, like if I'm writing a song, the lyrics that come out obviously – uh in some ways part of you just like making them behave like lyrics like a song but 
obviously there'll be a message in there. If you've got the theme, I'll make sure I stick with the theme and um, draw out what feels like a nice message about that theme, right? Mm. But what's interesting about that is like years later, without you even knowing it, you go back and go, oh, that's that song I wrote like 10 years ago about wondering where my dad is or whatever. And you might forget you've written it and you go, wow, I am no longer the person that wrote that song. Mm. And then a few years later, it's like when George was born, it's, a, it's sort of very spooky. He's only about two or three weeks old. And I wrote a song. I don't want to say this the wrong way. I wrote a song that basically was an inkling of what I was already worried about might be a path that might be ahead of him for various reasons. Mm. And he, like I said, he's two weeks, three weeks old. And when I when I re- think about the words to that song now, it's like it's absolutely, it's like it was like foretold. Mm. And the message that I've got in that song to him is more true than ever. How mad's that? Is that song out? You've done that song. It's already written, or yeah, oh, yeah. No, yeah, I mean it's, it's not. It's not. You know, most of my songs are just like they exist on a hard drive for me somewhere but like it's not recorded it properly but i know what that song is you know that's the weird thing it's like even though the 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 very many dozens of them that not done with a band Mm. or the role they are in a band in my head aren't they because i know exactly if i had the money what they'd sound like but that particular one yeah um without giving anything away about what i'm talking about too much there's like a lyric in it that's something like there are rivers full of bones and things you'll never know this is the promised land. This is what I want. And it was like, I was terrified of becoming a grown up and a dad. Mm. And I wanted to, I was making peace with the idea that uh, like your child is never going to know the whole of you. Mm. But even though he was really young, I already was thinking one day you're going to have to like go, right, that's enough from you parents i'm off and you have to like find your own way Mm. and it's strange that i was thinking about that when he was three weeks old but it's like the the story his the story of his life it's like it's totally relevant Mm. it's really interesting but yeah my my uh my relationship with fatherhood is all in George's direction, not the other direction. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I had to learn it from scratch. Yeah. And that's all right. That's fine. Is it fine? Well, is it fine? Yeah. Well, it is, yeah. It's fine. Yeah. Okay. It, it could have potentially not been fine. It's strange. It's like... If say say I'd have got in touch with my dad mm. before George was born, like while while he, while his mum was pregnant, said, "Look, I know you've not heard from me for a long time, but you're going to be a granddad." Now, leaving aside the possibility that obviously he got ill and whatever, but you know the sliding doors version of that where. You now try to have a relationship with your estranged father at the same time as becoming a father 
and then you have to deal with the reality of who that person is. Mm. Or if I'd have got to know him and then he'd have died. Yeah. Can you imagine can you imagine how traumatic that would have been? Yeah. And I'm not saying it would definitely would have gone that way, but it just is what it is now. And it what it what it was is it's a it provided a a very definitive ending, literally, to the mystery. Yeah. So it stopped being unfinished. Yeah. I mean that the the the, uh, the therapy I was doing at the time, which I did for like two ish, two and a half years. I went when when we went through that the fatherhood issue. I mean, he watched this stuff happen in like bloody who's following a box set, this guy. Mm. <laughs> I'd be there one week going, and now I've got someone pregnant and I don't know how to be a dad. Oh, by the way, now um, I'm having the baby and uh, I'm thinking about my dad and his issues with my stepdad. Oh, and now my dad's died. And now, and <laughs> you know, it like literally happened over the period, thank God, that I was going to therapy. But uh, my experience of my father was the image that we ended up coming back to was a, an M well I said it was nothing mm. and then the therapist woke me up to the idea that nothing is a thing mm. a void is a thing it's not nothing mm. a void is a lack a void is a space mm. so then I started thinking of whatever my dad is as a huge empty aircraft hangar and then from him dying and then me becoming a dad and then me starting to do dad stuff and learn how to be a dad, mm. that aircraft hangar then started to have stuff in it. So the word dad now doesn't exist in a black hole. It's yeah. just like, I'm a dad. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Yeah, yeah. So like, yeah, honestly, like, yeah, it's a very strange thing because for about three years after my dad died, I made a point of putting time aside to sort of, whoa, you know, that date comes around in the calendar and I know when it is give myself space to get my head around it. But then the weirdest thing was maybe the fourth or fifth year, I realized that I'd missed the day by a few days. Mm. And then I had to like go, oh, well, well, I'll I'll do my being sad now. And I tried to like, Ugh. I tried to do <laughs> the sad. And it was like, no, the sad isn't there because you didn't have that, you didn't have the relationship. To perform the sad, to perform the sadness, you mean? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I was like, uh, aren't I supposed to be really sad this time of year? It's like, well, you don't have to be. Mm. So now, like, honestly, if I remember, I know it sounds terrible. If I remember this is the day my dad passed away now, it's probably sort of an accident. Mm. Kind of strange, isn't it? By the way, is this, you know, like you've got, we're doing a video call. Do you yeah. upload the videos or? No, oh, right, no, I was just, say. just the audio. <laughs> yeah. I've got like a little photo <laughs> here of my mum and dad in the 70s. Oh, wow. And the other one that will make you laugh. So this is on, on holiday in about 1985, where your mum goes and makes you stand with the hotel lobby band. So that's like the first band I was ever in. Oh, amazing. How Capulana in uh, Albufeira. How old were you there? Probably about 10 or 11. 
Yeah. And it's literally your mum going, go up, go and play the tambourine. And I'm going, I don't want to. <laughs> and she's going, do it for me. Do it for me. If you want to make me happy, do it for me. <laughs> That's another episode. Wish you musical. I think a frustrated musician. No, frustrated singer. Got a good voice, uh, my mum. She used to sit and sing like Barbara Streisand and Lane Page and all that. But without without any of the accoutrements of what a musician would be doing mm. when you're just sort of intrigued and want to hear your voice. So I can remember her, I remember her being sat on the floor in the living room re- singing, uh, Bob, what's it, Barbara Streisand? What's um. it called? The Midnight. Not a sound on the pavement. What's it called? <laughs> that memories. Oh, it? oh, that's it. Yeah, I can't wait. I wish to get the names of songs. Yeah, uh, I think it is. I so funnily, funnily enough, like even though they're not songs I sing, I love hearing an old mum ballad. You know, like <laughs> you can't beat it. But this goes back to what you were saying before about that kind of like wartime era because it, it's like the mums singing songs mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to soothe their kids and it's got oh, it's yeah. that, that sort of like quality to it, the kind of um, Carol King, as you said, Barbara Streisand um, and all the mums kind of singing that way and then there's something about the dads um kind of there is a romance to it mm-hmm. so i i have i think i find it quite interesting that cuz i don't know exactly how old you are you said you're late 40s um yeah, yeah 49 now 49 cuz if i think about like the some uh, quite a lot of the people I've interviewed are all around your age group, so like late forties, early fifties, maybe mid fifties. And I find there's something about your generation. If uh, people talk a lot about like masculinity and men, and like there's something about your generation, I find very emotional. Um, it's like this kind of, um, I've I've spoken about it before on the podcast, but there's this kind of like a looking up and a looking down to do two different eras. You're kind of saying goodbye to one thing and it's, um, yeah, we straddle, we straddle those two attitudes. Yeah. We've, We've seen a big change, haven't we? Yeah. And it's like, it's difficult to, it's as if it's, there's a kind of like yearning for a father figure. And and at the same time, a kind of wanting to guide your sons, because like you're describing it with your son, that's what I'm hearing from others as well. Um, yeah, yeah because then... you think about it, the male the male story mm-hmm. of the last hundred years is from suffering in silence mm. and uh, coping with silence you know, repression, booze, violence, whatever, all the things that we know that uh, tend to be, uh, and to this day, let's face Mm. it, it's an improved situation, but the situation is the same. It's the same problems we're trying to solve. Mm. And and it's doing this, talking and 
people being open and uh, talking about feelings and discussing the music, not just singing it and crying to it and in secret. You know, mm. that that journey of uh, a gen- generations of men growing up thinking, I want to do better than what I was shown. Mm. Uh, it's kind of interesting because it might, cause my dad wasn't there. I don't feel I was not shown. Mm. Obviously, I wasn't shown because there wasn't anyone to show me. But basically, I grew up with loads of women around me. So mm. I've, I reckon I've ended up being so talkative and uh, open and emotional and whatever because I've been around more women than men anyway. So I I didn't pick up that kind of like, you'd say in that, I'm not, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I like that. I don't mind that. Yeah. But yeah, blokes, if, if I think about friends who've grown up with a, a distant dad, say, they are more likely to be uncomfortable on this ground. Because hmm. I'm just wondering if that's where the music comes into it. Because you you described that, despite that sort of um, time, like these songs that you were describing were really kind of very emotional and evocative, and a, a, like a channel through which you could express some feelings that weren't really allowable, at least for those, probably for those people of your father's era. I'm just, yeah, I'm just thinking about, like, the expression that it gives and the help that the music gives to express feelings that are not allowable. Um, It's interesting because it feels like my real love for these songs that behave in that way is a recent development as a result of maturing or, or, mm. or I don't know. I don't know why it's gone that way, but put it this way. I don't know. Part of it probably just is you're getting older. And so you're listening to like easy listening music instead of rock and roll. But <laughs> I, I still like from the age of 16, which is I live in Manchester and now it's the Stone Roses and we're right in the middle of it and we think we're the best people ever. Mm. And then you walk around like a tit for 15 years with the haircut, like walking like Kevin and Perry, right? <laughs> then Oasis and all that, like absolutely love it all, right? Yeah. So that that was, if you like, the uh, the middle, the middle, the, the second act of my life was that it's like guitar bands and cool stuff and the who and the jam and the kinks and the stones and like anything twangly jangly raucous you know like i was never into like metal or like heavy rock but there was something about the sun it felt like i was quite militant about it being pretty much guitar driven and with a bit of attitude and that's what songs were for. But I always loved a ballad then as well. But yeah. but it was like that's what it's for. But now it's like the power of it as a as a means of expression seems more important to me now than as a vehicle to look cool. Yeah, yeah. And also, it's just like you're not going to look cool now anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you don't. You know, you don't get you don't get to be the cribs. <laughs> He would like strips I mean, the. Sorry, yeah. go 
maybe 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 I can admit to you that like oh, it'd be nice if I could still be the cribs, but I'm not going to pull that off. So it's going to have to be Roy Orbison. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I sort but of like, forget to listen to bands sometimes, and then like recently, I've I've made a playlist to to remind me to like listen to something that's a bit quicker. Hmm. And I'm going, oh fucking hell, this is a lot of fun, isn't it? I used to love this. <laughs> what are you thinking of? What songs? Well, I mean, as I just mentioned, the Cribs. Like, uh, oh. I was listening to their album "Ignore the Ignorant" uh, the other week. Let me let me have a look. I did. I started a little. Playlist. It's going to make me sound so old. Foot tappers. Okay. Uh, well, they're not all rock and roll on here, to be honest. But uh, no, but even say like uh, say like "Modern Love" by David Bowie, right? When it's just like, oh, right, this immediately this song wants me to have a fucking great time. Mm. And and. Uh, but in a much in a much kind of like more scuzz rock vibe, down down by status quo, where that's proper like gurning like Les Dawson nodding your head music, isn't it? <laughs> um, yeah. No, no, to be fair, I've not got on the playlist I'm looking at. There isn't loads of rock and roll, but also another good one on that. You know, in terms of like bubblegum punk pop or whatever. Saplan Pour Moi by mm. Plastic Bertrand, where, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's an age where all you want is to plug a guitar in, learn how you make it sound fuzzy, get everyone playing in time, and somehow crack a recipe for, like, a banging indie disco tune, you know what I mean? But, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I'll leave it to the kids. <laughs> we. <laughs> Were you always, um, was it always specifically sort of, well, I guess you're describing a different range of musical taste, but I was thinking, for example, were you like a raver or anything like that? Was it always kind of guitar um, or straight singing kind of soulful music? It was mainly bands, but like you couldn't avoid after the first wave of like indie and then dan indie dance it went very dance music, didn't it? Until Oasis happened. Yeah. So there was about three key partying years where, well, all your mates are in that room and it smells of Vicks and everyone's on drugs and everyone's dancing to, you know, Rosala, <laughs> right? But then it's like I always much preferred going somewhere where there was an indie room. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you could go, right, I've had enough of this. And then you'd go in. You know, you go in there and fucking step on had come on and you go, right, we're we're all right. Yeah. Yeah. But uh yeah, it's always been somewhere between indie rock and singer songwriters for me. One one band, one songwriter that you know, coming out of the kind of like trying to be like oasis y kind of like, you know, rock and roll y mm. out of that era. Or like just after that era, the bands that I love the most are Doves, Supergrass, because there was a fun to it with Supergrass, mm. and it was also like there was a bit of a complexity to it that, uh, even though it was very still quite usually quite happy, could be quite happy clappy, there was a there was just a smart undertone to it. But Doves, 
I felt like the the emotion in Doves' songs. There was like I was like totally trying to copy them loads of times when I was like writing something for to play with other people. Like it felt like oh, if we try and be like them, no one will mind that we're thirty. Oh. <laughs> you know what I mean? But uh, but then the one that really really uh, made me wonder how you get good and and can and create a. a, a like an emotional um, atmosphere was I am Clute, right? So Johnny Bramwell, uh, like some of those songs, like I had most of the albums and it was just, uh, there was just something really naked about it. Mm. Where you could hear this pained wisdom in this person. That really, really meant a lot to me. Learn like I learned so many of their songs, and it that's funny. That'll that'll influence what you want out of sitting and telling your own little story. You know. Yeah, yeah. Again, there's like something of like uh, honesty you're describing because I think I remember seeing you had a, an Instagram post of an artist that you admired or liked and you said it was something about like the brutal reality of life that that was what you was enjoying you, you, you were enjoying that kind of uh like you're being told the truth I guess maybe like you like being told the truth was it uh, a Lucian Freud painting yeah that was it yeah 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 that was like talk about my art tutor right so you know, you live in a, you know, a normal sort of working class home in in Manchester and, you you know, the telly's on and you have your tea and you talk about football with your mates and all the rest of it. And then you go to school and art teacher puts on a South Bank show about Francis Bacon and Lucian Freud and the fact that they're friends and they've got art that's different from each other, but they, they egged each other on to be better at the thing that they were trying to do. And like, obviously like Francis Bacon's thing was like quite surreal and like, it's like almost in the realm of horror. Mm. Whereas Lucian Freud's skin tones of all his nudes, I hadn't realized that you could, you could see so many skin tones in one person just by angling a light at someone and then being maybe almost a bit harshly honest about all, all the different colors you can see yellows and you know like you look at like some of the some of his paintings uh you know there's that thing where like the back of your heel can be a bit red mm. but like the front of your foot might be might almost be a yellowy <laughs> lemony almost like my t-shirt now like a and, and then somewhere else on the same person's skin mm. he's got the light fall in a certain way that you've got purple and red and whatever and it's like blotchy and it's kind of just uncompromising and ugly and but it isn't ugly it's like it's horribly true but that means it's beautiful because it's not mm. scared mm. and um yeah i must have been bloody 17 when i first you know and i didn't feel like uh, i wasn't like confident about talking about those things with friends maybe mm. I felt I felt nervous going in a bookshop till I was about thirty. 
felt like I didn't belong there. Mm. Going over and asking someone, can I, my mates recommended a book. And then it's, well, who's it? He's saying a writer's name, Dave Eggers. Oh, it's a novel. Oh, yeah, it's really good. Oh, God, I don't know if it's really good. You've read more than me. Really had a serious uh, knowing your place kind of chip on my shoulder. Mm. But then you think back and you think, well, you don't have to be able to talk about it to know what is intriguing you. Mm. And it probably has been doing so since before you could bloody express yourself anyway. Yeah. Observation, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So somewhere along... What's that over there? Yeah. I was just going to say somewhere along that line, because you said you used to feel that way, somewhere along that line again, it's like something really profoundly changed for you, like you've got a different way of looking at it. Would you say that was because of things like therapy or just just life, just kind of... You Thera therapy to... therapy helps you f help me figure out finding out what you're made of and being okay about it mm -hmm. but that's different from the confidence of uh i'm allowed to i belong in this room or i can hold my own mm -hmm. that is just jump in and try and do it even though you're scared mm -hmm. and then you learn actually this is this this is like a big clang of a name drop now <laughs> but I did I did some work uh, about a year and a half ago for Steve Coogan, mm. and I uh, was like totally styling it out like it this was fine. But it was like he was like my top character comedy person ever, mm. still is. And I was asked to write a load of live material for him because he was busy filming, and I had to like figure out what I thought he would say about a bunch of subjects. I felt like I knew him well enough from being a fan that I sort of felt like I understood the rhythm of how he spoke and how his jokes would probably land and all that. Mm -hmm. So I spent a very pleasurable, say, five, ten days. The, the golden bit of it is no one's looking over your shoulder. You're just going, I wonder what this should be. And you're spewing all these jokes onto paper, mm -hmm. sat in a cafe in town in London. And then, uh, and then you're like, oh, my God, I've now got to email this document, <laughs> Steve Coogan. Anyway, so to my great relief, he really liked, you know, it wasn't going to be like, all of this is right, but it was like, oh, hello. You know, like you've sort of, you're getting it, you know, you're, you're getting, we, we've got a basis of a decent conversation here. So we, then, then I jump on a call with him for like an hour and a half. And we're pulling up bits of it that he likes and he's riffing a bit and I'm riffing a bit. And I'm sometimes finishing a joke he started and vice versa. And it's like one of those pinch yourself moments where you're like, you're effectively doing like a joint guitar solo on stage with Slash or whatever, like Johnny <laughs> Marr or like, you know, and it's like, oh, this is happening because you can do this. Mm. And the reason you can do it it, well, you couldn't do it, and then you started trying to do it by emulating someone like him over so many times and with so many people in so many ways that have been sort of inconsequential, and some of them have been like pieces of shit that I would like rub off my CV. But you were always learning a thing, a craft, 
And like, yeah. that's all it is. It's not like, and oh, anyway, so on the, in the conversation that we had where it was like, yeah, we were discussing the work. We started sharing our experience of moving from the north to London with all these fancy Oxbridge people and getting in a room where you could be quite intimidated because the person they've got you paired up with who you like and who is your friend already and you go to the pub with them and you both feel the same way about comedy, but the bookshelves in their mind are so different from what you've grown up with. My bookshelf is the pub and the yeah. people and the characters and and just telly and other things I found funny and then found I could mimic. And obviously on a much higher level, Steve would say the same thing, got a good ear. Mm. But then what he said to me was, uh, he, those people, the, the Oxbridge lot, as brilliant as they were, they couldn't pull, pull calf out the air Mm. and do it and it'd be convincing because they they have to sort of imagine that world through Charles Dickens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Whereas, you know, I know it's a bit simplistic, but if you're, if you're from a sort of the humble world, not mm. the highly educated world, well, then you've got a, an authenticity to be able to write that stuff. Mm. And then so what you realise is they're not better than me. I'm not better than them. I'm not worthier than them because I've lived in a pub. Mm. The beautiful point is we can all be useful to each other. And they'll be grateful when you do your bit and you'll be really grateful for learning what they teach you about structure and narratives and classic story archetypes and what, you know, what the uh, archetypal characters are and how that relates to the classic stories and all that, just stuff that it's like, I'm never going to go there, but it's a, it's a pleasure. Mm. I rate with my friend, Jason Hazley, he's pretty, pretty well-educated. He's a smart lad. It's always good for someone to throw something down that uh, is evidence of the sort of, uh, the cultured version of knowing about that thing. And then your version of it, and you go like that, and they oh they they line up. Mm. So it turns out that that stuff wasn't that intimidating in the first place. Yeah, you know, yeah. it, it yeah. just was made available to some people and not to others. Yeah. So yeah, yeah I love I love that uh, lifelong journey of realizing that you're good enough. Yeah. That and that's doesn't I don't mean that for me. I mean that that's what we should all be feeling. You're yeah. enough. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really powerful statement. I almost kind of, <laughs> it's like a perfect ending to the interview, but I also, what was I going to say? My mind, my, my words aren't coming to me today. <laughs> well, we have done, we have done <laughs> almost two hours. Almost so, uh... two hours I, know. I have a habit of, of making the interviews really wrong, but. Um, no, it's enjoyable. I love it. There's, there's something very beautiful about the way you describe uh, these things. And I think, oh, that was, yeah, that was it. I was going to say, because you, you spoke about people and um, there was something of, uh, for me that you were describing about sharing. And this was an example of it because you kind of shared um, you are enough. 
and you kind of gave that to people it's like oh it's not just about me it's about um all of you it's like you're saying take this Mm. so like in um and i recognize that in a lot of the songs i love um in a lot of my favorite bands that's the Mm. sentiment i get that they're giving something and it's like let's figure this thing out Yeah. yeah and it's it's really inclusive and it seems to come from that exact same place that you're describing as a kind of humbleness to it and a kind of us and we sentiment yeah. um yeah well that's good that's good because i like like i said like yeah look here i am like, i've literally just talked about myself for all this time and i do my podcast and a lot of it is that and uh, uh something I've, I've been trying to work on over the years is not taking over conversations because i get into a problem and i talk about it and can end up talking about myself a lot right mm. but I've been trying to develop this other bit that even though that still still happens a bit, I'm onto myself. And secondly, you know, over the last few years, I've fallen more and more in love with how important other people are. Like you're, you're so much better off thinking in terms of this thing being a shared experience than just everything's happening to you. Because mm. it fucking isn't just happening to you. Mm. You are not the centre of the story. Something that um, not not time to properly go into it, but I was listening to some, a lot of Alan Watts a few months ago. Mm. A brilliant podcast that his sons put up of a load of lectures by this guy called Alan Watts, a bit of a spiritual guru. And he, there was one episode of that where he was talking about the different the different ways that even like different faiths will have the way we see the world fundamentally in a different way and one of the one of the uh, expressions of that was about the cosmic drama uh mm. i don't want to get it wrong which 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 religion am i talking about hang on i'm not going to let this go past without me finding out you can bear with me you can edit this bye i'll probably keep it in. <laughs> cosmic drama my guess is that it's hindu okay. well actually this says uh in the judo christian and islamic traditions oh right here we go like yeah life is often seen as linear with god separated um hang on I'm going to read a thing out off directly off the internet. So have you ever heard the uh, the phrase, all the world's a stage? Mm. Yeah. So there's this idea that the whole thing of everything, everything, the life, the universe, all that, it's all unfolding as a big, constantly evolving story all the time. Mm. It's huge. It never stops. And... The thing about that is that's different from like walking around thinking that you are, if you like, a main character. I actually find it very, very comforting mm. to realize that I doesn't mean you're nothing, you're a little speck, mm. but that all of it, every single bit of it is important. That started to help me feel relaxed about this thing I said about a change and feeling better and not not worrying about like money and whatever. 
like my problems because it's like well what are my problems they're just like an yet another inconsequential tiny little footnote of one person's life during their brief time on this planet which is just this huge event this universe is this huge event and Mm -hmm. it's just like actually you just you're alive and that's it you're you're part of it so it's all right linking that back to music now and covering for the fact that I just like totally dried up while I did some Googling. Have you ever heard, <laughs> have you ever heard a song called uh, the never ending happening by Bill Fay? Mm, I don't think I have. Can um, I highly recommend to anyone listening to this, oh, like the spirit of what I was just describing. And I'm not that deep a hippie, but I feel like that's sort of like probably not a bad direction to face in. It feels like, this fucking feeling of being like part of this natural fucking mm. phenomenon of just being alive and just not even me being alive, but life even just being a thing. Mm. That's like, wow. What if you let that in? It not s- sort of slightly lessens how, how stressful that pile of bills is. Yeah. But yeah, that uh, Bill Fay, I think he, he had album out. He had music out like decades ago disappeared and again it's inspiration for an old man who still wants to make music and get old but he then brought an album out it might be about 20 or or even earlier not sure but he brings this album out called life is people which he makes in his shed and he brings it out and it's just this glorious album and it works because he's lived and because he is mature and because he's worked out what he feels and there's this one particular track called The Never Ending Happening, where he basically he's basically saying this, it's going on all around you. Look at it. Mm-hmm. So nice. The never ending happening. Of what's to be and what has been. Just to be a part of it is astonishing to me. Never ending happening of waves crashing against the cliffs, the falling seed the wind carries, the never ending happening. Souls arriving constantly from the shores of so, yeah, eternity. I'd like to, there's maybe he counts as one of my little father figures. I had a thought that when you were talking about um, all of this, that one of the reasons that you were unhappy in in where you were before, I know you mentioned it was about people. I wondered if it was about giving because you seem to have a lot of like energy to give. When you were in the village, it didn't seem like there was anyone to to receive it. Um, Just like kind of energy that wasn't going anywhere. Um, well, a big part of that would be, like I said, I'm a dad, but I've had a, quite a tough journey of getting enough time being able to be a dad. Mm. And that's still true, but there's people here, so they, they get dadded instead. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Like, and, and I have, like, I'm having, like, 
I'm seeing my son quite a bit at the moment and he's he's like out of his shell a bit and that's great. But I needed to be somewhere where there is somewhere for that connection. Yeah, that was that was not helpful to the situation at all. But you're right. Generally, it would have been true anyway, because I just didn't have many friends there where I lived. But it was an extra frustrating thing to have, like, you know, being a, a separated dad and the scope of how often you hanging out at my house started to change. And, uh, yeah, there's, like, a bit of... Part of that also put me onto this frame of mind of, uh, and I've still not really fully explored this, but I am exploring it, is like to get into a role at this point in my life where I can pass on things I've been learning mm-hmm. as like a creative writing, teaching and tutoring and uh, just something that is about giving feels like something that would be very healthy to add to the, to the working week. Uh, I did a bit of t- teaching earlier in the year for a film, a film, short film course, and I'm I'm talking to a, a, someone from a university next week. Uh, without a doubt, some of that is surplus dad energy. Without a doubt, it's good energy. <laughs> it is. Well, it's yeah. well, it's good to go. Well, it needs to go somewhere. Otherwise, it'll make you sad. Yeah. Mm. Thank you so much, Nico. Um, I know I've kept you a long while. I don't know if you had uh, <laughs> other things to do. So I'm no, sorry. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I mean, you know, from listening to Matt's show, he'll keep me on for three hours sometimes. <laughs> I'm like crying by the end of it sometimes. Like, please let oh. me go to bed. But thank you. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Well, saying that, I am going to go and have a pint now. Okay. <laughs> Enjoy the pint. Um will. and the evening. Thank you. Um I thought I might send you a song and you can oh, and I yeah. won't sue you if you play it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing, like no like no one in the world is gonna ever gonna hear my music apart from like, oh I put it on the podcast or on Instagram or you know, whatever. So uh it feels like it'd be nice to to choose one and let you have a listen. Do you have one in mind already? Or- uh Mm, I don't know. Not I've, there's a few. There's a few. Mm-hmm. What I might do is just as as friend to friend, I'll send you a few just so you can hear them. Yeah. I'll let you choose. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'd like to do that. Saves them sitting on my hard drive, going dusty, yeah. doesn't it? <laughs> I'll just okay. chuck you a little file, and you can say, "Oh, I thought this one was uh, suitably miserable, <laughs> 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 or relevant, or happy, or whatever." Be interesting to see why you choose the one you choose. Right. Yeah. All right then. Take Speak to care. you soon. Bye, love. Bye, bye.
Did you fly?